0: to them,
1: children of the night, what music they make. Welcome back to Scored to Death, the podcast. The official companion podcast to the book, Scored to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers. My name is Jay Blake Fischera, and the book is available from Silman James Press. It features 14 in-depth interviews with renowned film music composers that have made significant contributions to horror and have worked with some of the genre's greatest filmmakers. It is available on Amazon and from other book retailers. The goal of both the book and this podcast is to explore the craft of film scoring and celebrate the amazing composers that do it. Today's episode is part one of a detailed discussion with the French composer who professionally goes by the name Rob. He burst onto the horror film music scene with a fantastic early example of retro synthwave scoring, the 2012 Frank Calhoun and Alexandre Aja remake of Maniac and he has since worked on numerous films and television shows from all over the world, including Alexandre Aja's Horns, the Natalie Portman period fantasy drama Planetarium, Amityville, The Awakening, the more recent French horror thriller Revenge, and Alexandre Aja's virtual reality horror experience, Campfire Creepers. We've got a lot to get to, so let's get started. This is the first episode where we're recording live. Like, we're together...
0: Okay, hopefully we'll go <laughs> fine.
1: Today I'm with Rob, and Rob flew all the way here from France just to do this interview. Of course, especially <laughs> for you. It's and, a real pleasure. And we're sitting atop Christie Street in uh, the lower east side of Manhattan. Rob, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I know you're you're really busy. First question is, Why just the first name? Why just Rob as kind of your musical handle?
0: So my my full name is Robin Coudert, Robin Coudert, as we say with a French accent.
1: And it just appeared that
0: this is how my friends call me, Rob. And so when for the first time a record company asked me, okay, so what should we put on your record? I, I didn't really think of it. Like maybe if I had... I would have put out something <laughs> a bit more sophisticated, I don't know, but it
1: it just it felt natural like to be called as my friend called me. When did you realize that music was your calling? When did you really get into music and decide that you wanted to start playing it and creating it?
0: I would say as far as I remember I have very, you know, blurry memories from my childhood, so I was probably even before 5 when I started to play with little keyboard toy. Or I remember I was really into a decomposing electronic instrument. Like I would take a screwdriver and yeah. take everything apart and play with the, the, yeah. the little parts. So that was my first contact with music was really from an electronic aspect, sort of fascination for the object sure. that I still have. And obviously today I like to play with things and not destroy <laughs> it. But yeah. uh, it's a bit the same concept in a way.
1: I wonder if that's like a creative thing for kids, kids that are creative. Cause I, like to destroy? You not mean? destroy, but like take apart yeah, and try to I, see like what's going on yeah, inside. I guess it's part
0: of the curiosity. Very simply just to know like what's inside, <laughs> like what's inside the box. Yeah. If yeah. you're curious, so that's what you want to know. What's making it do that? Uh, And so this is my first really, like really childhood memories and then I started to play trumpet uh, because uh, I had no special affection for this instrument but um, it was the first instrument you could start with without doing any study before. Because my dream was to play saxophone, don't ask (laughs) me why, it was like a child fantasy. And you had to start with theory for a year before you can play saxophone. So, trumpet, I guess it's because it's uh, such a hard instrument to play. They wanted the kids to start, like, s- as soon as they can to play it. It's, it's like, quite a shitty instrument. <laughs> to me, it's really, this is, this has, like, yeah, tough memories because I was eight years old and I was a bit, you know, uh, like a skinny kind of kid, a bit, like, uh, <laughs> not in a great shape, I would say. And yeah. so it was extremely painful for me to blow in a trumpet. And uh, eventually, I, uh, as you say, I fainted. I fainted. Passed out. Yeah, I passed out before my third, uh, I had to pass a test, you know, every year. And the third year, I I passed out. Just blowing in too much in that thing. Too much. So it was obviously quite a trauma. Like, to pass out doing music, it's not exactly what I expected at this age. (laughs) Yeah. Even though today... I experienced that kind of thing too, but <laughs> I enjoy it, now, <laughs> well, wasn't it, I wasn't it tra- now. It's not as traumatic now <laughs> yeah. as it was then. Uh, so uh, my parents, thanks to them, uh, decided to help me stop this uh, torture and they offered me a synthesizer, which was a very determinant. Around what age was that? So probably 10 or 11. And uh, why a synthesizer? Because I couldn't, Afford and I had not had uh, in the room for a real piano, so it seemed like a like a reasonable option. To sure, have a, maybe it's l- just luck, but they chose a synthesizer that had MIDI input and output, mm-hmm. and it happened that I also had an Atari ST at this time, which was the first computer including a MIDI interface. Yeah, so I started to. Really explore electronic music at that age, so around ten, with just playing video games with MIDI interface, and I had MIDI files from uh, Beethoven, Bach, Mozart, and I, I just I was playing with MIDI files, so just putting some parts in loop and or reversed or, or changing the notes yeah, yeah. and playing this with my synthesizer. So when I was ten years old, we have to understand that it was 1988 or so. And at this time, a guy like Jean-Michel Jarre was quite big in France and in the world, actually. So I was really the kid, like, a bit fascinated by this era, uh, this genre in music. So to own a synthesizer at that age and to be able to do some electronic music was really something that that blew my mind. Yeah. So that's really, I would say, the the like the, the starting point of a really passionate relationship towards electronic music.
1: So there was like a little bit of fate going on, kind of. Yeah, kind <laughs> of. I, I don't know if it's luck or fate or magic.
0: Maybe it was just something very intuitive and instinctive to go towards that kind of thing. Because, yeah, I could have done something else with this piano. I could have went towards, I don't know, like jazz or maybe blues or played ragtime or some yeah. kids do that. But no, I was more into not even playing, actually, but make my synthetizer play alone with the computer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was good. And then I started to listen to my older brother records, my brother Ben, who's a great collector. Of, he has a great shop in Paris called La Dame Blanche. So he's really a specialist now. But yeah. at this time, he was already really into... He was a, how do you call it, a digger? Sure, vinyl yeah. digger. And so I started to listen to like heavy metal stuff but not the mainstream things and not Metallica but more like I started with the purple then Led Zeppelin that Black Sabbath and he was also into stuff like Christian Death or like we Weed, uh, weirder stuff. Sure yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So when you were twelve, thirteen that kind of music really takes you by the guts. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's what happened to me. <laughs> the, the
1: sim- similar trajectory to me. I think people <laughs> that uh, we're the same age, and I have an older brother also, and I think at least for males, at least from young men, I think even more than we realize, we're probably influenced by our older siblings. Because one, we get a lot of hand me down stuff hand-me-down toys hand-me-down clothes yeah, sure, sure. Hey. <laughs> you know like we get all the recycled stuff but then it's like we're too young to buy our own music mm-hmm. uh and so we end up listening to our, yeah, bro- our you have older, to deal
0: with what's around you in, the, in our the older house. brother's yeah. music yeah.
1: so growing up for me it was uh, my brother was in the 80s was very into van halen mm-hmm. and so there was that and then when i was in high school i got very into black sabbath and so throughout your teen years was it still like this hard rock stuff, or did when did when did you start kind of expanding your musical vocabulary in terms I mean, of my my
0: own my own thing? Uh, it took me like just a little time to start my own band, starting from this heavy metal hard rock uh, basis. So uh, it was called Insane, and I started as the we called it the manager of the band, <laughs> and uh, so at this time it meant uh, I was in charge of the lights the light during the rehearsal.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> so that's a very nice conception of the, 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 the management thing. <laughs> but it just allowed me, now, I mean, uh, from my adult's point of view, just it allowed me to sit in front of a band and realize what's good, what's bad, and sort of have, a you know what I mean, a distance, yeah, yeah. like sort of a producer distance. Sure. Uh, towards music, so that's how I analyze this now. Obviously, it wasn't the case at that time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I, so I started to, in a way, be interested in production, in uh, how how I should advise the guys. Oh, maybe you should uh, stand there, or maybe you should play a bit louder, or maybe you know, even the mixing. So that's that. that was the, this at this time was insane? Then I step by step I became uh, the second singer of the band and also the keyboard player but it's there are just a few keyboard parts in that kind of music so I wasn't except uh, like Stairway to Heaven with the mellotron or <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. No Quarter that kind of song uh, the rest was a bit uh, hard so I went more and more into Deep Purple because I was fascinated by mm-hmm. John Lord uh, who I still consider as a Almost a guru, I would say, because yeah. I, I really I still dig his style, his sound, and the way he includes classical music, but distorted. I think it's really cool. So I started to study his playing a bit more, and I started also to work with a teacher, a personal teacher, a keyboard teacher, yeah. and he told me he was wrong, but it was a good thing. Oh, you're into John Lord, then you should buy a Fender Rhodes. Which was obviously completely wrong, because uh, John Lord plays the Hammond. <laughs> yeah, But it's a good thing, because first, uh, I can't imagine going back home with an organ on my back. <laughs> <laughs> Though that uh, Fender Rhodes is quite heavy too. But then, anyway, I, I bought a Fender Rhodes, under his advice. And I discovered this beautiful instrument and I discovered that this was actually the sound of so many songs, so many tunes we could listen to, and it gave me uh, uh, another taste of, uh, you know, the love I have for Gears, uh, especially like the Gears from our childhood, so today we call it the vintage, but at this time it was just the stuff you couldn't (laughs) buy. So with my first synthesizer that I still had at this time, and this Fender Rhodes, It started to be sort of a a combo, you know, like um, an instrumentarium. Can you say that in English? It's a Latin word that means just like the instrument that are used in your your environment. And it was just going a bit further down into the production thing and how it sounds. So I could even... uh, had some effects on the fender roads, some pedals, some stuff, some wah-wah, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And it led me to jazz funk or more experimental stuff. My brother um, introduced me to uh, stuff like uh, Mahavishnu Orchestra or bad things like Weather Report, or you know, <laughs> like things that I don't really like anymore. But quite interesting in terms of just to... Extend your uh, your vision, like, your, the, and also the the way of playing, the all the instruments that are used. And I eventually started another band, a funk band this time. First, it was just funk. Then it went slightly to P-funk step by step, because I was then sixteen, seventeen, and we were into more partying and drugs and <coughs> uh, sex and uh, well, just having fun. So P-Funk was... uh, Just uh, Funk wasn't going to do it anymore. Funk is already a good start, and then (laughs) P-Funk it's even even more fun, I would say. So we were 12, I think, yeah, we were 12 on stage at at this time. So it was sort of a big band. Uh, It was obviously a lot of fun, sure. And it also showed me how to construct a song, how to arrange it a bit. So, two guitars, one synthesizer, some horns, some percussions. Sure, yeah. So, it was also the beginning of the another aspect of music, like really an arrangement aspect. So, that was very interesting for this. I was sort of the, not the leader, we was the guitar player and I, we were sort of, uh, yeah. Co-leaders. Co-leaders of the thing. And it was, I have to say, um a very heavy duty at this time, because all the other guys were really like more into fun and into sure just yeah. play gigs and uh, get some chicks. uh more than this than to like uh, really compose music and be serious about it but it was it was really cool. I was dating the the lead singer, so I didn't have to seduce, <laughs> her, and so I could focus on the music and uh, yeah, that was a very good experience too
1: I think everybody considers himself at least a little bit of a fan of film of cinema but at any point were you into some of the film music that was going on when did just did did you ever get into film music or did you just kind of fall into it
0: well actually all i said was about music but the in sort of a parallel vision i was extremely into cinema and into I I I didn't identify at this time that it it was a score because I could I didn't make any difference between the movie and the music to me it was just one yeah. piece, but I was really fascinated by very strong movie where the music was extremely obvious and powerful, but I didn't realize that music was a big part of the movie at this time. But yeah. now I know. Like I could watch the mission, you know the film mission. Sure. Yeah. I could watch this movie like every day, and I was really fascinated by. The story, of course, but also the music. And I still consider this score as a a beautiful uh,
1: piece. It's um, a new Morricone.
0: Yeah, yeah, a new Morricone, though it's not extremely... Like, it's not a typical Morricone score. That's not the one you would quote first. But <laughs> yeah, it, it was no, the one a, I... It's content. a great score, and I think
1: yeah. it definitely has its fans. I mean, there's people yeah. that are very fanatical about that movie and that, yeah. and specifically that score. And
0: I remember especially uh, a sequence in that movie where there's a sort of a indigenous choir with kids singing. The melody, they sing on, in this movie, keeps like keeps running in my head. Like ev- every time, even though I have to compose something, <laughs> yeah. it's it's it just <laughs> it crosses my mind because I, you know, that's how it is with childhood traumas. Yeah, it just it, it stays there in your mind forever. So this movie is part of it, and also I remember watching in English. You call it the Fearless Vampire Killers, Roman Polanski. Yeah, the Polanski film. Yeah. yeah. And this one was also like a, a, like a huge part of my child inspiration. Uh, and the music is so beautiful in there, the Christophe Comeda music.
1: <laughs>
0: sort of subcarpathic harpsichord female vocals very vampire-ish but also with a lot of humor and, sure and this music is also always in my mind even something I quote musically without noticing <laughs> yeah. and after I'm like oh shoot this music <laughs> exists already <laughs> but that this is how it is I guess inspiration works like this so these movies, I I I think I could watch them like almost every day or every week in, during my childhood. Even though I was maybe six or seven, this this was a great era of uh, VHS. So it was. <laughs> we were very
1: lucky in that we grew up as part. I, I call oh, us, yeah. I call our, our generation the the video store generation. Yeah, we're sure. Kind of the first generation of children that had. Access to be able to re watch things it's amazing. over and over again. You know, Before that, all you had was if you got it on television or if you bought the novelizations yeah. and to listen to the score. Those yeah. are like the only ways you. And then in the late 70s, it became kind of popular. And even before that, some people would watch, buy like the shortened eight millimeter Yeah, Yeah, the films. yeah, so, yeah.
0: I, I had this at home. Too, yeah, so they watch like, like the, no?
1: watch like the five minute version of Star Wars. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, but it's true that uh, the, we are lucky because this this was the first time that you could have like a really nerd relationship with movie because you could own the movie. Yeah, you could have the object. You could you could actually like carry it on with you, and <laughs> you it's You could something. take it to somebody's house. And yeah, watch yeah, yeah, it yeah, there, exactly. Too. And plus, it's true to say that the the the, the object, the VHS, the tape. It's it was really cool. I mean you had the cover, you had the back cover with yeah. just little pictures. Yeah. It was really you could own the movie and take it with you, as you said. So, uh, it's for sure it created
1: um, well, like it created it was, like a it created like a record, like a record, yeah, a mentality mm-hmm. to movies. Like you said, like the cover, you could read the description. I went, I went to film school and I did a lot of uh, actual shooting. The cinematographer when I was. When I was in film school, I, did, I shot a lot of people's films, and they would ask, like, how does it look? Because we were shooting films, so there was no monitors. It was just, like, yeah. the eyepiece. The yeah. And they'd be, how, do, how does it look? And I was like, oh, it looks like back of the box, <laughs> meaning, like, it look, if this frame is this. If you were going to make this a VHS tape, mm-hmm. this would be the one on the back of the box, or side of the box. This was <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like the, this is the This is the frame that would be on the side of the yeah. box to sell <laughs> the movie. <laughs> And so but, yeah, it was like it was tangible. You had the art; they were using, still using the DVD arts now. Or sometimes, are I don't know why they redo them. But we had beautiful art, and even some of the horror films, like Black Roses. When you went in the VHS store, it would be raised. Yeah, like you had yeah. like gimmicky boxes. Yeah. It was like it's, it's,
0: of... it's interesting that you you mentioned this little picture, like on the side, of, <laughs> because it's it's we have to realize that this very picture, this very little one. It had a huge importance on, sure. on our generation because that—that that was what we—that f- was our first look on the movie. <laughs> was often
1: and, just the spine of the and side of it, especially
0: yeah. when it came to the horror movie uh, district in the store. This picture had like—it's crazy the influence it had on on me. At yeah, least. yeah because I I was a kid so I wasn't really allowed to go in that in that section <laughs> sure, the only thing I could have was just this this vision of the <laughs> that movie that little
1: you could the f- whatever font was ri- it was written yeah, in yeah. which early on was just usually a white font but then it started to get more stylized but you could see like the title and then there was always just a little tiny frame that was like like you said it was the only representation mm-hmm. we have of what that movie was about
0: so <laughs> that, that's why I think the guys like us the relationship we have towards genre movie and horror movies is is so passionate and so yeah. in, there's sort of a in great intimacy with between us and this this kind of movies because it was from the childhood like this this vibe is very tiny It's very subtle you know what I mean yeah. it's something that it's hard to describe it's really something like you. Like, it's like a pin <laughs> on your brain. You know, when you're yeah. a kid, when you're six, everything you see, everything sure. you hear, everything you. Yeah. Everything has a huge importance. And that kind of thing, to have a shock picture like this, yeah. to have the reanimator, like just th- a screenshot of this when you're six, it's really like. <gasps> yeah, yeah. You, you have the feeling that there's a, a huge world behind this cover, behind these VHS, that you are not allowed to access. And that that is something like greater, like to, yeah. I don't know how to describe. It's really something <laughs> well, even very to strong. The, and...
1: Even to this day, when I'm talking to somebody and they're like, "Oh, have you seen so and so movie? Have you seen this movie?" And it, it being an older film, I'd be like, "I know, I've never seen it, but I know the box." Like I I've seen like I know I can picture the way yeah, it looks in the video yeah. store, but I've never seen yeah. it. So it really has like made it that's like it imprinted a, itself on our mm-hmm. brains for sure.
0: And again, my older brother had a huge importance on me because he had the access to this VHS because he was eight years older than me. So he he could just go to the to the store and take whatever he wanted <laughs> and take it back home. And so I could just hear some noises from the from the room uh, yeah. next to, next to mine and also he was so I had quite a dark brother as you understand now. <laughs> well yeah well yeah, yeah. he was listening to some hard <laughs> and rock he and metal he, and... he he was actually really in love with that kind of movie so he even like he, he used to buy the posters and mm-hmm. would put it in his room so he had his room was like a very mysterious and dark world. I have me. a cousin that's like, yeah, like that thought like and he yeah. he smoked a lot of uh, hashish and with the, the, all the West Craven's posters everywhere, <laughs> listening to Christian death. Sure. So he was, you know, when you're um, yeah, like yeah. a pre-teenager kid, to have an older brother like this, it's really like, wow.
1: I had an older cousin. My brother is like five years older than me. But then I had a cousin that's probably more of that difference, a little bit older than my brother. And when I would go over my aunt's house, his room had he had put like a pad he had put like a lock like a deadbolt oh, on his yeah. room like his, and he only he had the key but mm-hmm. sometimes it would be open and I would walk in and he not so much movie posters but it would be like Ozzy Bark at the Moon you know uh, all kinds of heavy metal posters and Ozzy with blood coming out of his mouth and all this stuff and it was like yeah, it's it was beautiful. crazy <laughs> <It's> beautiful <laughs> <It> captured the <laughs> imagination of a little yeah. kid
0: yeah exactly the feeling of entering into a cave. With forbidden artifacts, that was very interesting. And plus, he was a, a an artist in a way. He was a, he loves to to draw, to paint, and to even do sculpture. But you could tell he was really under the influence of uh, chemicals. <laughs> so he did just weird stuff. So his room was really like a, a strange mix of a museum, uh, horror, uh, like really a weird cave. Sure. So yeah. just to go there when he wasn't there and to discover some some yeah mysterious aspect of something that i was sure. not allowed to to discover it had also a great influence on me
1: now you were interviewed for a french documentary about john carpenter mm-hmm. not speaking french i turned it on and i i didn't know what you were saying so i don't so these questions are in reference to like was he ever like an influence on you like what what kind of things would you have talked about in in that documentary like were you interested in his films when you were growing up or did you discover his stuff later
0: no no it's he's uh, the perfect example of what we're talking about like the kind of movie I would first discover on the cover in the store and then uh, see some artifacts in my brother's room and then eventually watch the movie so I think Halloween was the first one I, I could watch I think it's a good start, yeah, uh, for carpenters as well. Probably a lot of people's first yeah, yeah. Carpenter film. And I was probably too young, like um, like most of the experience I had in my life, I would say I, I was a bit a bit young because I was the the youngest of the four four siblings. So that's why probably I went into different experiences a bit early. So I think I watched Halloween when I was probably twelve. And it's also, it's the perfect age because <laughs> you get it in your face. You're yeah, like, oh, fuck. Yeah. So it, that's what happened to me. I was literally like, I was like frozen. I was like, it, 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 yeah, it was yeah. extremely, uh, an, very intense experience. And obviously, again, the music just blew my mind, but without noticing. So it, it's, I think it's really, it may be not my favorite from Carpenter, but I think it's his best it's a real masterpiece even from a composer point of view I mean it's 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 perfect it's really yeah. perfect it's so so simple and crazy and I love the way he included the influence of uh, minimalistic you say that sure yeah. minimal music oh, well, you know what I mean Like to put this into a horror movie, that's so cool. That's so clever. Yeah. A-
1: well, he is kind of the master of minimalism. I interviewed him for the book, yeah. but I also interviewed Claudio Simonetti from the band Goblin. Uh-huh. And we talked about a Carpenter. And he said, with Carpenter, it's like you can hear one note and you, you know it's Carpenter and it's like more effective. At any note you, even if you played the same note, it like wouldn't have the same resonance yeah, 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 <laughs> as if he played it. You said Halloween is not your favorite. Do you have a favorite?
0: Uh Maybe, maybe uh New York, in nineteen
1: eighty-seven. Yeah, yeah, uh, Escape from one. New York. Here.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's oh, yeah. Sorry, that's no, how that's we okay. call it in French. Yeah, e- we have a lot of weird translation in uh, yeah, the yeah. kind of movie. Anyway, yeah, and also the, again the the even. Behind the notes and the composition, just the production of the music. Like it, it, it left a, a huge print in my mind. The use of sequencers and synthesizers sure. and drum machines. What I love with all this period in my life is that everything happened like without me doing anything. Yeah, that's 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 what's so great in childhood. Like you just have to let yourself go and just be with the good person, I guess. <laughs> so you have to be a bit lucky, but it's just everything's uh, goes inside you without. Without doing anything, so if you meet John Carpenter when you're 12, it's just it's perfect. (laughs) It gives you the right keys. Are
1: kind of the perfect. Mm. At least I, you know, I can only speak from my experience. But for like a young male. Like, his movies are kind of perfect for, you know, 12 to 15, 16. You got, like, because they're cool. Like, Escape from New York is cool. Big Trouble in a lot of China. That's it's probably, very cool. Yeah. It's probably, like, the coolest movie ever. Yeah, thing. yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing about that movie that's just not cool. And then you get the horror stuff. Even Christine, you know, had a huge impact on it's me. A masterpiece. It's growing, beautiful. Growing up. Yeah. Yeah. So, throughout your teens, you kept playing music. And then uh, into the late 90s you started to have uh, some success.
0: I wouldn't say that. I I like to think that I've never been been successful. And I like this idea because I think being successful, it wouldn't be helpful to me because where I am right now, uh, I can be really myself. I don't have any uh, commercial pressure of any kind. I do really what I want to do and the, the the directors or the musicians coming to me are just interested in what I do for real. Not you know what I mean? It's not like I did a big hit yeah, and now yeah, everyone's yeah. coming to me, okay, I want to do the same. But, but there's I'll.
1: but there are plenty of people who play music through their teens and stuff and never get out of playing cover songs and local bars. You know, at least you started to record some of the stuff oh got yeah released, oh yeah yeah you know success in that
0: way oh success in that way you yeah yeah like, yeah just yeah. like
1: the uh, next the next professional step yeah
0: yeah 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 you're right uh, yeah so it happened actually i i didn't intend to be a professional musician at this time i studied uh, painting and uh, engrave, engraving i used to say that i was in a fine art school in paris so i i was i was sure i wanted to be an artist but not sure about what exactly, and uh, so I went into so fine arts, and I really loved that. I was studying with a um, a master called Vladimir Velikovic, who was a very tortured Serbian artist, uh, very influenced by uh, like Francis Bacon and stuff like this. So he did really like a bit hardcore paintings with the big crucifixions and uh, blood. And yeah. now when I say this. <laughs> I have the feeling that my whole <laughs> life has been like conducted kind of by with mor- the, with the weirdos morbid, in the world. Uh, <laughs> but I was actually a happy kid <laughs> uh, during all this time and a happy teenager.
1: Often the people that are into things like horror movies and heavy metal are, are happy. happy. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's yeah. like a, it's a, it's a weird outlet that other people don't have. You yeah, know, true, it's, yeah. um, there's more depression in mainstream probably. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's
0: right actually. Anyway, so I was in that, uh, in that school and I had some, uh, medical issues some lung issues so I had to quit everything for a while I went to the hospital got surgery and uh, it sort of made me realize that you know the kind of thing you want to realize when you're 18 that okay life is short and maybe once again 18 is a bit early to to think of this Yeah, yeah but anyway that's my life and so I I quit my girlfriend And I started to focus on what I really want to do and uh, who I want to be and try to be a good person and really connected to your uh, deep inner feelings. So I eventually quit this school where I was uh, quite miserable because uh, I didn't feel like I didn't feel very comfortable surrounded by Serbian artists <laughs> and uh, I but I had I had still my band uh, and I started also to have a little home studio so I thought that maybe I should give a chance to that part of my my interests yeah and I started to focus on the music like just 24 hours a friend of mine just gave me an apartment, a big apartment next to Paris. And I started to just compose music day and night for a year and a half. Yeah. And it's when I met my first record company called Source, uh, who I was introduced to by my friends uh, from Phoenix. Sure. They were signed on this label. And they told me, you should meet those guys there. A guy called Marc Tessier Ducrot. He signed also Sébastien Tellier, uh, Air, uh, well, that kind of people. Yeah, yeah, and I started to understand that I sort of, yeah, I belong to that 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 branch at this time, and I just kept. I was obsessed with producing music, and I started doing only this. So it was a very interesting uh, period in my life because it's the first time I really did only one thing, and uh, you know. W- so being uh, 18, 19 and doing like constantly music being very poor but you don't care at this time like, and yeah, I had yeah. no family nothing to take care of just I could eat pasta or not even <laughs> pasta maybe to eat a glass of water and uh, just smoking pot and yeah, doing yeah, yeah. music all all the time and they eventually the artistic director of this label started to think okay this guy is, is really into it we should maybe talk about it and he really pushed me to, like, he was really encouraging and saying, okay, this is great, shoot, do more, do more, do more. And he was a great guy, Marc Tessier-Ducro. He really managed to give me some uh, self-confidence and to, like, to persuade me that I, I was able to do this. Yeah. Uh, so I had a, a track tape uh, recorder, very nice uh, thing. Yeah. And I did like, uh, I don't know, maybe 40 or 50 tracks. And we picked 20 of them and we we went to a professional studio to record. So that was my first big step in the real world of uh, yeah. production. Uh, I was very influenced by the 70s French producer at this time. Uh, you know, the great Serge Gainsbourg albums like uh, Melody Nelson, like à tête de Choux like uh, this is uh, this uh, very arty poetry slash experimental slash pop music yeah uh, the kind of music they would do in France in the 70s and it's what I loved is that it was really a mix between like 70s pop music so a lot of the Rhodes a synthesizer the electric bass played with uh, you know the muffled sound but also with an input of classical music and weird arrangement with strings and horns yeah. so something a bit experimental and very romantic yeah. That's when I realized also that my music was very romantic. I always wanted to put some emotion, some feelings, some whatever it can be. It can be sadness, melancholy, or love, or yeah. I don't know. But something uh, related to emotion. I'm not a great dance music producer, for sure. <laughs> That's not the music I, I yeah, can provide. Yeah. It's Whenever I try, it's a, it's a disaster. But... When it comes to just being emotional, that's where I feel really comfortable. and So that's what I did, and uh, we recorded my first record then, called Don't Kill.
1: And when did the idea or the opportunity present itself for recording music for film?
0: It was a bit later, maybe two years after, so in 2002 or three, when I met my, uh, well, at this time she was just my girlfriend, but she eventually became my wife. And she was uh, uh, in a director school in Paris, so I started to hang out with uh, directors and DOPs and uh, like script doctors and <laughs> those kind of people. And she asked me to, because I was a musician. She knew it, of course. She went to my show. She uh, and she asked me to score her first short movie for the. the it was a like a school study. Sure. Think, yeah. yeah. And I. Just it felt so natural to me, and it, it was very obvious that it worked very well. That my music on pictures was just like, okay. It was a perfect match. Yeah, because uh, I was very into. In, though I recorded uh, like this, don't kill. I was already into instrumental music. It's the time where Air released Moon Safari, so it was a big step into you know a mix between instrumental and pop music. It was the first time in the two cases that the, the the there was a audience interest for uh, instrumental music not related to dance music yeah, you know what yeah. I mean it wasn't house music it was pop but instrumental and to me it's re- it really opened the door to what I really wanted to do to record because it's quite experimental to think that you can release a record of pop instrumental <laughs> it's a bit okay but yeah. what's the point <laughs> yeah, but yeah. yeah there's a point and it goes so well towards score it's it, it is it's kind of a soundtrack a pop instrumental. so the, this first short movie was called Pink Cowboy Boots I even played a little uh, part in it and it was my first experience it was very unprofessional at this time because I didn't know how even how to lock the music on the picture I didn't have uh, like a real pro tool stuff at this time so it was more I composed the song <laughs> and the editor had to work with it sure But it was it was sort of a success in our like in our posse. I don't know how to say. Uh, Like everyone really noticed that it was a great a great score actually. So I did the second one for her, and then I met some friends of her, like Rebecca Zlotowski or Teddy Modest, who asked me to score their first feature when they just went out of school. And this is how I scored Belle Epine and all the rest.
1: Okay, I know it seems like we're just getting into his film scoring career, but that's about the midway point and a good place to stop for now. I, of course, need to thank Rob for being part of the show. Please come back in two weeks for part two of this conversation, when we will dive into his composing process, his film scoring career, and much, much more. The next episode is an absolute must. If you've been enjoying the podcast, the book, Scored to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers, is available from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and many other places you buy books. Or you could order a signed copy from me directly. Just contact me through scoretodeath.com. You can also find and follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at Scored to Death. Scored to Death, the podcast, is available on most podcast apps and distribution sites, as well as on SoundCloud and YouTube. Please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show on iTunes, or on whichever provider you listen to podcasts. Ratings and reviews will help raise awareness for the show. My other podcast, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, can also be found on iTunes, Google Play, and most places you find podcasts. And on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at SatSleepovers. You can find Rob on Facebook at rob.dudecalog. That's Dot. D o d e c a l o g u e. Thank you so much for listening to Score to Death, the podcast. And please come back in two weeks for this conversation's exciting conclusion.